Welcome to News of the Times. News of the Times covers the Regency, Victorian and Edwardian stories of their day. True crime stories, scandals, serial killers and unexpected interesting stories are uploaded daily. All stories are derived directly from publications of their day. Please do be sure to take a look at the More Information section. Here we list the backstory of the video as well as additional videos you may like. Thank you again for listening. This is News of the Times and I am Robin Coles. The Time, 1873. The Headlines. J.S. Fry and Sons produced the UK's first chocolate Easter eggs. The first sleeping car is introduced in Britain on the Glasgow to London Night Express. Alexandra Palace in London is destroyed by fire only a fortnight after its opening. Alice Vickery passes the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's examination, becoming the first qualified female pharmacist in the UK. Work begins on the Natural History Museum in London. Napoleon III, deposed emperor of the French, dies. Mary Ann Cotton, serial murderer, is hanged. Jesse James and the James Younger Gang pull off the first successful train robbery in the American West. The New York stock market crashes, triggering the Panic of 1873, part of the Long Depression. P.T. Barnum's Circus, The Greatest Show on Earth, debuts in New York City. Our headline story, the story of Mary Ann Cotton. For our listeners, Mary Ann Cotton is renowned in Britain as a mass murderer. It is believed but not completely proven that she killed four husbands and eight children, including her own children or stepchildren. There have been estimates of her having killed up to 21 people, including children. The motive is thought to have been for the collection of monies from insurance policies or because the children got in the way. Mary Ann Cotton never did give a full confession. The related news stories are from the York Herald, March 1873, the wholesale poisoning cases at West Auckland, the prisoner committed on four charges of willful murder. The woman, Mary Ann Cotton, who is accused of the extensive poisoning cases at West Auckland, was again brought up before the Bishop Auckland Bench of Magistrates. On Tuesday the 2nd, additional charges of murder for the poisoning of her stepson Frederick Cotton, aged 10, on the 10th of March last. 
and also her own child, Robert Robson Cotton, aged 14 months, on the 29th of the same month. Prisoner was brought from Durham Jail in charge of the head warder and Mrs. Robinson, the matron, who sat beside her at the dock during examination and alternately nursed the child, which was born during her incarceration in Durham Jail, and which, we are informed, has been christened Margaret Edith Quickman Cotton. Evidence as follows. Sarah Smith, wife of William Smith of West Auckland, said, I know the prisoner, Mary Ann Cotton, very well. I lived six doors from her at West Auckland. I knew her from her first coming to West Auckland that would be about three or four months before her husband's death. When she came to West Auckland, besides her husband, there was a stepson named Frederick Cotton, another stepson called Edward Cotton, and her own son called Robert Robson Cotton. I remember Frederick being taken very ill. I also remember him dying. When I went to see him, I found that he had a very sickly and faint appearance. I saw the boy again on the following day. He appeared much worse. I noticed he was bleeding for a leech wound on the right side of his bowels. He was also sick and vomiting. He complained of thirst. Mrs. Cotton gave him a drink, and he very often vomited after the drink. Mr. Scattergood, surgeon and lecturer on forensic medicine and toxicology at the School of Medicine in Leeds, was next called. He said on examining the stomach and the bowels he had found traces of arsenic. He was of the opinion that Frederick Cotton had died from poisoning by arsenic. Other witnesses were examined and evidence given showing that the deceased child's life insurance was insured under the Prudential Insurance Society. The prisoner was then charged with having murdered Robert Robson Cotton on the 29th of March. On the morning of his death, the child appeared quite well, but before evening he was seized with convulsions and died very suddenly. It was shown that the mother, Mary Ann Cotton, refused to call in the neighbours when the alarming symptoms came on, and excused herself by saying she knew the child was dying and wished him to die quietly. The medical gentleman proved that death resulted from arsicinal poisoning. A Newcastle chemist gave evidence to the effect that the prisoner purchased an ounce of arsenic at his shop in January 1869. From Lloyd's Weekly Newspaper, March 1873, Mary Ann Cotton. The series of cold-blooded murders for which Mary Ann Cotton was hanged in Durham Jail last Monday morning are crimes against which no punishment known in history could make way. The woman appears to have been utterly devoid of a sense of the heinousness of her crimes. She rocked the child on her knees today that she was to poison tomorrow. 
she kept the body of one victim unburied till she had finished off another, in order to make one funeral ceremony do for the two. Most of her murders were committed for petty gains, as a small policy or a burial fee, but the last was merely to get a boy out of the way, because he prevented her from going out to work. She killed off husbands and children with unconcern of a farm girl killing poultry. The woman showed no violent passions. Her conduct provoked no suspicions until she had cleared her house of every living soul. That such a human creature can grow in the midst of our civilization is a deplorable fact to ponder. From the Stroud and Gloucester Advertiser, March 1873, Mary Ann Cotton. The conduct of the unhappy woman since her protracted trial and condemnation has undergone a marked change. The verdict of the jury, though it could scarcely have been expected otherwise with such overwhelming evidence of her guilt, had a terrible effect upon her, and in some days she was in a prostrate condition, but she re revived considerably and continued to maintain a solid and reserved demeanour, and her protestations of innocence were frequent. She had strong faith in the efficacy of a petition, and writes letters to her husband Robinson, who still survives, and several of her former friends, urging them to set up a petition for her life to be spared. One or two attempts made by parties averse to capital punishment met with little or no success. A few days ago, the child to which she gave birth after her incarceration in Durham jail was entrusted to the care of a neighbour, the wife of a pitman at West Auckland, and her parting with it and her friends was a of a most affectionate description. From the Whitney Express and Oxfordshire and Midlands County Herald, April 1873, the execution of Mary Ann Cotton, the convict's last moments. On Monday morning at eight o'clock, Mary Ann Cotton was executed in Durham Jail. The reporters were admitted at half-past seven, after waiting within the gate about a quarter of an hour, the reporters were requested to proceed to the governor's office, which overlooks the eastern quadrangle of the jail, where the scaffold had been erected on the same spot as it was during the execution of Slane and Hayes for the Spenny Moor murder. At ten minutes to eight o'clock, the bell tolled, and in five minutes more, the prisoner who had been pinioned in private by order of the governor, was led into the yard, supported by two prison officials, and followed by the under-sheriff, Mr. Richard Bowser, and the Reverend W. Stevenson and Mountford, Wesleyan ministers, and the Reverend J. C. Lowe, the prison chaplain. Mrs. Cotton was ghastly pale, but walked with a firm step praying audibly and earnestly, 
With her eyes uplifted, Mrs. Cotton, who regarded the spectators with an air of defiance and muttered constantly, took her place upon the drop with remarkable composure. Calcraft put on the white cap, and his assistant adjusted the rope. By a preconcerted arrangement, the bolt was drawn by the assistant, and the wretched woman was dead in a minute or two. After a few convulsions, the body was motionless. The time occupied on the drop was remarkably short. Mr. Mantford states that in the condemned cell at six o'clock, he had urged upon the unfortunate woman the great importance of a true confession before there could be a true faith in Christ. Having seen her on Saturday and found some discrepancies in her statement, he brought them before her notice, and she stated that she believed she had been the agent, that is, the poisoner, but not intentionally. He pointed out to her that there was a lapse of time between the deaths, and asked how she accounted for that circumstance. The acts did not occur on one day, but happened within months between them. He strongly urged this point upon her, but she maintained a sullen reserve. Mr. Young, a deputy governor, stated that she had spent a comfortable night, having slept from three to four hours very soundly. She appeared to be very penitent, and prayed earnestly with the female warders, mentioning her husband and child, and weeping at the mention of the latter. She stated that she had written three times to her husband, Robinson, but that he had refused to visit her. The convict had retired to rest at half-past eight, and all the refreshments she partook of this morning was a cup of tea at half-past five o'clock. Shortly after six o'clock, three Wesleyan ministers, Messrs. Mantford, Stevenson and Bennett, arrived and remained with the convict to the end. At nine o'clock, the body was cut down and the inquest held. Advertisement from the Freeman's Journal, January 1873. Insurance. Founded in 1823, the Edinburgh Life Office accumulated funds of one million... £84,359, perfect security, liberal terms. A special prospectus giving full particulars of the operation of this system may be obtained on application. From the Islington Times, April 1873, more than a hundred times in custody. Emily Little, a well-known disorderly woman, was charged before Mr. Barker with being drunk and disorderly and annoying male passengers at Colebrook Row in Islington. From the evidence of Police Constable Bird 250N, it appeared that at about one o'clock this morning he saw the defendant accosting male passengers and annoying everyone she came near. As she would not go away when she was requested, she was taken into custody, and on the way to the police station, her conduct was most disgraceful. Police Constable Taylor, 20N, Reserve, said the defendant had been more than 100 times convicted 
for disgraceful conduct in Colebrook Row. He had known the defendant as a disorderly woman for more than 20 years. The defendant said in defence that she was very drunk and did not know what she said. Mr. Barker sentenced the defendant to one month's hard labour in the House of Corrections. The Horse Field Child Poisoning For our listeners, this is an interesting but complicated story. It was a very famous case in its day, as questions still remain regarding the woman's actual culpability. In short, Edward Bailey had an illegitimate child with 17-year-old Susan Jenkins. The baby's name was Sarah. The court held Edwin responsible for baby Sarah, and he was ordered to pay maintenance for the child at five shillings per week. Edwin Bailey was known to feel highly resentful of the required child support payments. Susan left the baby Sarah in the care of her mother, Mrs Jenkins. Mrs Jenkins and baby Sarah began to be visited by a woman purporting to be with a charity. Presents were given to Mrs Jenkins in support of baby Sarah. It was discovered, though the course of the trial that the woman supposedly from the charity was Anne Ball, who worked in Edwin Bailey's shop. Anne was possibly having a relationship with Edwin Bailey. The baby began teething. Anne offered a baby teething solution in packets of Steedman's soothing powders. The powders were used by the unsuspecting Jenkins on baby Sarah and the baby died a few hours later. The packets were found to contain a vermin poisoning containing strychnine. The related news story below. From the Monmouthshire Merlin, December 1873, the Horsfield Child Poisonings, prisoners sentenced to death. At the Gloucester Assizes on Monday before Mr Justice Archibald, Edwin Bailey, 32, a tradesman in business as a boot and shoemaker, and Annie Barry, 31, charwoman, were charged. The former with the willful murder of Sarah Jenkins at Stapleton on the 17th of August, and the latter, Anne Barry, with aiding and abetting. The trial lasted all through Monday and Tuesday and excited much painful interest. A great deal of evidence was given, but the facts of the cases were briefly these. The deceased Sarah Jenkins was the illegitimate daughter of a young woman named Susan Jenkins, who lived with her mother at Myrtle Cottage, about three miles from Bristol. The child's mother was formerly in service at Clifton, where her mistress occasionally sent her to the shop of Mr Edwin Bailey, boot and shoemaker. Mr. Bailey is a married man, but it is alleged that an improper intimacy sprang up between them, which resulted in the birth for the now deceased child, Sarah Jenkins. The child was affiliated to Bailey against whom an order was made for the payment of five shillings a week. Soon after this order was made, a woman called upon the mother, Susan Jenkins, made sundry inquiries regarding the newborn child 
and professed to take a deep interest in its welfare. This mysterious woman continued her visits and came to see the child two to three times a week, sometimes bringing it cakes and socks. She frequently took the child out, and on one occasion she took a lock of its hair. At another time she requested to be allowed to adopt it as her own, but the mother, Susan, refused to accede to this request. The conduct of the woman was somewhat of a puzzle to the child's mother and grandmother, and although she frequently was asked her name, she always evaded the question, simply saying it was Anne. She continued her visit up to the 15th of August last, on which day she again called as the child was then suffering from some slight ailment. She suggested some powders should be given it for teething. She said that in all probability she would send the powders. She then left, and the next day, or shortly afterwards, a letter was brought to Mrs. Jenkins' house addressed to Susan Jenkins. The address appeared to be in a female's handwriting, and on opening the note it was found to contain a shilling's worth of postage stamps and three powders marked Steedman's powders, and there was also a note stating that some clothes for the child would be sent in a day or two. On the day after the receipt of the letter, the child's mother left service and returned home. When the letter was shown to her, it was concluded that the articles had been sent to her by some benevolent person. On the following Sunday evening, the child's gums were swollen, and as it was unwell, the mother mixed one of the powders in some sock bread and administered it to the child, who died ten minutes after taking it. Dr. Parsons was called in, and having examined the two remaining powders, he was led to suppose that they contained poison. The powders were subsequently submitted to an analytical chemist in Cheltenham, and he expressed the opinion that the powders had been taken out of the original Steedman's papers and replaced by a vermin-killing powder containing strychnine. Suspicions were naturally excited against the putative father of the child and against the woman who had visited the deceased child in so mysterious a manner. Bailey, who had denied the parentage of the child, and had been heard to say he would give half a sovereign to the first person who brought him tidings of its death, was apprehended. In his writing case was found notepaper, envelopes and stamps, which corresponded in every particular with the notepaper, envelope and stamps sent with the powders which had caused the child's death. On the last occasion that the mysterious woman visitor called at the house, she said she would not call again as she was going to move somewhere else, but she did not give her address. However, the police succeeded in discovering her whereabouts, and she turned out to be the female prisoner Anne Barry, a charwoman, who, although had repeatedly stated she knew nothing of Bailey, 
She had been in his employ and was well known to him and he to her and was in his employ at or near the time of the child's death. The judge, having very carefully and clearly summed up the case, the jury consulted a few minutes in private and then returned into the court with a verdict of guilty against both prisoners. Bailey calmly protested his innocence. The judge, in passing sentence, said the crime of which the prisoners had been found guilty had been carried out with great premeditation and deliberation. His lordship then passed sentence in the usual form, and the prisoners, who had listened to their doom without exhibiting the slightest manifestation or perturbation, walked deliberately from the dock. Advertisement from the Civil and Military Gazette, January 1873. Caution! Steedman's Soothing Powder for children cutting their teeth. Purchases are requested to be aware of imitations of this medicine and to observe in every case that the words John Steedman Chemist Walworth Surrey are engraved on the government stamp affixed to each packet, sold by all chemists and druggists. You have been listening to News of the Times, 1873, and I am Robin Coles. Thank you for listening to News of the Times. New episodes incorporating a new span of time from history will be updated weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and subscribe. You can also check out our sister channel, Simply Stories, found on all your favourite podcast apps.